0: and welcome to Rising. We have a fantastic show for you today filled with holiday cheer. The uh, usual Friday hosts have all disappeared. Maybe they're off saving Christmas. So I am happy to fill in and happy to be here with you, Jessica. And you are looking very festive, I must say.
1: I'm feeling very festive, Robbie. <laughs> it's our last show before Christmas. We're gonna have a good time.
0: I know that we are. Well, we've got a lot of Trump-related news to get to. Why don't you take it away?
1: Yes, on Thursday, Detroit News released excerpts from an audio recording purportedly featuring statements from former President Trump and Republican National Committee Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel. According to the report, the recording revealed Trump and McDaniel assuring canvassers Monica Palmer and William Hartman that legal representation would be arranged for them if they chose not to certify the election results. During a phone call dated November 17th, 2020, Trump is said to have urged Palmer and Hartman stating, we must stand up for our country. We cannot allow these individuals to wrest our country away from us.
0: Meanwhile, Special Counsel Jack Smith responded to former President Donald Trump's request to postpone the Supreme Court's examination of his claim to criminal immunity in a forceful filing. Last week, the Supreme Court accepted Special Counsel Jack Smith's plea to address the matter of presidential immunity following Judge Tanya Chutkan's dismissal of two motions from Trump's legal team based on First Amendment and presidential immunity arguments. In reaction, Trump and his legal team submitted a request asking the court to await a ruling from the lower appeals court on the matter. And on Thursday, Smith filed a vigorous reply opposing Trump's motion and delivering a sharp rebuke, writing, The charges here are of the utmost gravity. This case involves, for the first time in our nation's history, criminal charges against a former president based on his actions while in office. The nation has a compelling interest in a decision on the respondent's claim of immunity from these charges and if they are to be tried a resolution by conviction or acquittal without undue delay.
1: On top of all of this, Colorado's Supreme Court decision to keep Trump off of the ballot in that state is fueling the fire for blue states seeking to do the same. Democrats in Michigan, Maine and California are already pulling the levers to see if they can follow suit. So and, there's, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Rob. I was
0: just gonna, and I was just gonna add, um, if all of that wasn't enough, um, Ed Meese, the former uh, former Attorney General under Reagan, I believe, submitted a friend of the court brief that I found very interesting that argues um, that uh, Jack Smith lacks standing to bring this legal action against Donald Trump uh, because the Merrick Garland's appointment. Of him was not based on any statutory authority granted to the office of the attorney general. Again, that's just one argument to throw into the mix. But I saw a lot of uh, you know people in uh, in uh, conservative legal circles um, circulating that um, information on social media. The argument that this is all illegitimate for that reason. So, uh, so there's that. Uh, but obviously, there's Trump facing you know legal jeopardy for numerous reasons. Um, and including now in Michigan, and, uh, and <laughs> efforts to keep him off the ballot entirely. Um, you know, where, where do you weigh in on the can, can Trump's name even appear on the ballot argument that Colorado has suddenly foisted upon all of us?
1: I was honestly surprised to see this happen because, listen, we know Supreme Court justices at the state level even— are making a calculation what will be the impact of this ruling as much as they wanna say that they are purely interpreting the law. We know that they're human beings. We know that they're thinking, what's going to be the backlash if Trump is taken off of the ballot in a state like Colorado, which is not like super comfortably blue. There are a lot of rural areas that are comfortably red in the state. There are people who really support Donald Trump in Colorado. And so I think in making this decision, They made some kind of calculation about what the political backlash would be and they said you know what we actually think the the 14th amendment applies and what's interesting is the dissenting judges at the state level in colorado they made an argument around how this wouldn't be legal per the state laws of colorado so if trump's legal team decides to appeal this to a higher court they're gonna have a tough case to make based on everything that was written and how this case was decided because those justices didn't really make a case for how this would shake out on the federal level. They basically dissented on the grounds of this would violate our state laws. So this might end up holding up in a higher court if his legal team decides to appeal.
0: Yeah, well, I I think, Certainly, the Supreme Court is going to be asked to weigh in on this. Um, I think probably the weakest area of the Colorado case and what this may hinge on—well, so there's the technical argument that the oath that the president takes is not the one covered by Section 3. Um, We interviewed Alan Dershowitz about this yesterday, um, briefly, before it descended into an argument about Israel-Palestine. People can check out that segment if they like. But uh, he found that (laughs) argument to be the least convincing, Uh, what he said and, and what I tend to think think, is that the, insurre- the specific insurrection language in, the, in, the, uh, in, in the, uh, the, the 14th Amendment is going to be perhaps not read to cover Trump's action. I mean, he's not been—A, he's not been convicted of insurrection. And then, re- really, what he's accused of is, you know, trying to remain in office via extra-legal means that may, or in fact, be criminal, but whether that's—I mean, insurrection—insurrectionary activity to me— Uh, like, involves uh, the seizing of arms, the, like, actual violence, um, revolution, that kind of thing, whereas Trump was using questionable legal maneuvers that, again, might, might reflect some underlying criminality, but is not the kind of thing that people who wrote the 14th Amendment had in mind. They had in mind, like, an actual army that was, you know, that was mustered against the United States
1: yeah, the the people who wrote the Fourteenth Amendment couldn't foresee Trump posting on social media <laughs> talking about the folks that were at the Capitol on January six. I think it's an it's interesting to think of his leadership on that day, what he was directing people to do, what now we know he knew was happening on the day of January six and and didn't want to call in the National Guard was kind of cheering them on, encouraging them at the Capitol for many hours while this was happening. Does that mean he was inciting an insurrection? If he's the leader of it, if he inspired it, if he gave a speech there and then they marched onto the Capitol afterwards only to break in and, and try and steal those those electoral votes. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not a legal scholar. I can see a case being made, mm. though. And I'm not sure what the makeup is of a lot of these uh, state supreme courts. But I can definitely see when it comes to 2024, Trump being off the ballot in a great number of states. But the appellate process is also very long. It can take up to three years. Uh, I think average for appeals for capital cases are, uh, you know, 966 days. So I'm not sure this would take as long, right? Trump is not facing the death sentence here. But there is a ton of evidence to review in a case like this. And it's an extremely high profile case. I'm sure everyone working on it will wanna be very careful and that can be very timely.
0: Hmm. Well, we will see which of these legal traps Trump is is able to step over or whether they trip him up. And I actually have a radar today. I will get into that next. Stay tuned, more Rising right after this.
1: President Biden looks to be ending the year with a dubious new honor. A Gallup poll shows Biden's approval rating at a paltry 39 percent. Trump's approval rating sat at 45 percent at this point in his presidency in 2019, while Obama's was 43 percent in 2011. The polling is a grim reminder, as Biden attempts to win re-election, that many people in cohorts Democrats generally win are not satisfied with the president. A new morning consult poll shows that Trump now leads Biden among 18 to 24-year-olds. Worse still for President Biden, he's bleeding support amongst Black and Hispanic voters. Trump also maintains a narrow edge among independents.
0: This comes as Trump has gotten a big boost from his high-profile removal from Colorado's ballot. Conservative commentator Charlie Kirk posted on X that 7 in 10 Americans believe that Trump's four indictments are political. Nearly 6 in 10 believe Biden is involved, including 54 percent of black people and 58 percent of Hispanics. The witch hunt of President Trump has backfired. Do you think there's some truth to that, Jessica? Um, certainly, going after Trump in this way has made him more popular among conservatives. Um, it made him more likely to prevail. Maybe he was already very likely to prevail, but it, you know, it crushed any momentum that DeSantis had going for him some months ago. The rallying around Trump on the right has been pretty remarkable. Um, he's gonna seems like he's going to sail uh, to the nomination he will be the Republican candidate. Obviously, anything can still happen, and Nikki Haley's having a bit of her own surge. But uh, there was a real rally around Trump effect because of all these investigations, indictments, prosecutions. Um, The question is, what do you think? Is this actually making um, Americans who he needs to win to his cause feel sympathy for him? Do they think it's a political witch hunt?
1: I really think this is the result of Joe Biden losing the Democratic Party and many people not knowing where else to go other than the other guy in our two party system. I honestly think it's backlash for Joe Biden's handling of the war in Israel-Palestine and his handling of Israel's behavior after October 7th and their response to the attack by Hamas. And I, I think people are sick of seeing the United States spend so much money on defense uh, in wars that may never end, in wars that many Americans see us having no business being in. I really think this was, was Joe Biden's uh, you know, race to lose. This, these are people that have been loyal to the Democratic Party for quite some time. The Arab-American vote, he's seeing he's now losing. When you look at the 18 to 34-year-olds, I don't think 18 to 34-year-olds are, are moving to the right, are moving towards Donald Trump, I do think they're moving away from Joe Biden. And when they're asked in a poll who they'll vote for, I think many of them will, will say Donald Trump just because he's not Joe Biden and they're quite angry with Joe Biden right now. So what does this mean come times for casting actual ballots in 2024? I think it means we're gonna see way more people go third party and the race might not look exactly like it does today between Biden and President Trump being the presumed winner for the Republican nomination, I think we're gonna see some pretty viable third-party candidates, whether they're running as independents with the Green Party or otherwise.
0: Yeah, that's the question. If people stay home, if people who voted for Joe Biden in 2020 either stay home or are interested in Robert F. Kennedy Jr. or Cornell West or the Green Party or the Libertarian Party, they don't you're you're exactly right. They don't have to actually vote for Trump. They just have to not vote for Biden. If Trump keeps his coalition together and there's fatigue and there's frustration uh, that uh, Americans are feeling, I think for some of the reasons you point out um, assuredly, I, I think even if you have, pro-Israel political convictions, you might still wonder why the top priority of the U.S. government is to fund other nations' um, security expenses at, at all costs, you know, unthinkingly. It's it's easy for the government always to allocate more funding abroad at a time when Americans are really suffering. And it's their tax dollars. And I think a lot of people feel like they pay into the system. They pay a lot into the system, and they don't get anything out of it. or They don't get enough out of it. Um, and then we obviously have different— We disagree about what policies are the right way to address that, but the frustration is real, and it's a frustration with Joe Biden. It's a concern about his age. That's the most bipartisan issue you can find. You can find a majority of Democrats are concerned about his age, to say nothing of Republicans and independents. And it's a reasonable thing to be concerned about because he's so old. We've never had a president of this age. Um, These concerns were present last time around on the debate stage. Now he's not really participating in debates so far whatsoever. won't you know bother to debate Marianne Williamson or Dean Phillips or anyone else who is running against him? Um, it, it it has this it, it it I think it causes people to wonder whether he's in any way capable of doing the job for another four years.
1: Yeah, I think among young people, especially, what's on their minds right now is repaying their student loans. That 18 to 24 year old contingency of voters a lot of them are college educated. We just had repayments start in October. Many of those students defaulted on payment. Biden promised student loan forgiveness. His proposal was, of course, blocked in the courts. And I think many people criticized him for taking this legal approach because there were perfectly viable alternatives under the Higher Education Act of 1965. It almost seemed like he failed on purpose. This was a huge campaign promise. You can't go back on your biggest campaign promises and expect to win. Biden is not someone who won because he was a personality vote. In many ways, people voted for Donald Trump because they liked his attitude, which is actually a good reason to vote for a president. You care about their attitude because that tells you how they're going to make decisions. Biden can't run that way, not only because he's so old, but he doesn't have much of a personality to run on. He had to run on policy, and then he got an office and didn't deliver on those policies. You can't expect a guaranteed reelection. With that strategy of governing, Biden needed to deliver on not only student loan repayment, but also improving the economy for everyday working people. He promised to be a, a union president. We've seen some good reforms from the NLRB, but I don't think anyone credits Biden. For those reforms. He's had union leaders come and visit the White House. That doesn't do much for everyday working people, especially when he's not promising anything in those meetings, which we know very well he's not. And so I think he's just failed everyday working people and failed young people. And the Democrats needed those votes in
0: 2024. Yeah. makes me start to wonder if the Democratic coalition is just unmanageable, uh, unmanageable. because I I hear you on the issues you're talking about. I I have no doubt that um, a lot of young people, of course, support um, student loan repayment, um, are very upset uh, uh, about—excuse me, support um, student loan cancellation, debt cancellation, um, support—are furious, frustrated with Joe Biden for the Middle East policy, Um, of course, I, I don't know, he, maybe he would lose—I mean, I I would be—I'm not inclined to vote for Joe Biden anyway. I would—him doing broad student debt cancellation would make me even less inclined to vote for him. I think a lot of people who repaid their student loans, uh, who made different educational choices, different life choices in order to pay back the money they voluntarily borrowed to go to college, would feel um, a little bit ticked off that, well, they did it, why can't other people do it? They have to have the government bail them out. Um, similarly with the Israel-Palestine issue. I mean. Do do so Arab you know some Arab voters? There's a lot of frustration in uh, Michigan, my home state, which has a huge uh, Muslim population. I, I know they're um, going to be less inclined to vote for Biden. Um, our and and our but our Jewish voters going to move into the Republican category because they see uh, because of their frustration with their 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 fury at what um, you know the, the left has done on college campuses, I bet that's going to happen as well. So maybe there's just, there's no way all of these people can be under one roof in the democratic party.
1: Yeah, I think there are many Jewish voters that are super critical of what Biden's doing in Israel, Palestine. I think, you know, if you're a Zionist Jewish voter, you should probably be very happy with what Biden has done in his handling of Israel, supporting Israel when they're calling what they're doing defense, when it's really collective punishment of civilians living in Gaza, um, bombing hospitals, refugee camps, raiding hospitals, removing electricity, food and water. I mean, their Jewish voice for peace has been very vocally against this. So I don't think we're going to see a mass exodus of Jewish voters from the Democratic Party. I do think that Biden intentionally has made bad policy around the student debt issue you point out, you know, what about all of the voters uh, that, or the students rather, that like Joe Biden, they wanna vote for Joe Biden, but they don't like the student cancellation policy, student debt cancellation policy because they've paid off their student loans. What about them? It wouldn't be hard to say, you're right. We saw the skyrocketing of tuition during the 2008 financial crisis when instead of entering the labor market, we saw many students uh, wanna leave high school and go on to higher education to shelter themselves from a a really bad labor market, quite frankly. And then we saw the skyrocketing of tuition and many rich bankers get very wealthy off of loaning students' money with high steady interest rates. And we saw the rise of for-profit colleges. So this was a a money-making scheme for a group of people. The students that paid off their loans or, or worked really hard and paid tuition as they were attending school, which was a really difficult thing to do, should just get a tax credit in that amount to make them whole again. Making the policies not hard, which is why I really think Biden has made bad policies on purpose. It's very clear who he's serving. He's serving, you know, the neoliberal capitalist establishment, the same people that want to make, you know, a bunch of money off of the political system existing as it is having education privatized. So a few people benefit and profit. Well, the majority of us struggle to get by and struggle to get an education when we want one. So I think, you know, Biden's failures are really deep and there's a whole group of non-voting people that have lost faith in the political system because of leaders like Biden who have done precisely this. And so really what we need is someone who's going to capture those voters because I think they're ready for the taking and the flip-flopping between Trump and Biden who are two very different candidates shows that there are a group of people that have political views that are not really represented by either of
0: them. Yes, both very old, both very flawed, and, uh, but it shows the power of the two-party duopoly to foist upon all Americans um, choices that so many millions of people are frustrated that it's this binary. But it's not actually a binary, there are other candidates, and uh, perhaps people can take a look at what policy programs they are offering. We'll have more rising right after this.
1: Robbie, what's on your radar this Friday?
0: So, Claudine Gay is the president of Harvard University, and in recent weeks, she has come under fire for plagiarizing portions of her 1997 doctoral dissertation, as well as published articles she had authored in recent years. Examples of plagiarism were first identified by the conservative writer and activist Christopher Rufo, following Gay's much derided congressional testimony regarding anti-Semitism on campus. Rufo has all but declared war on the Ivy League, which has prompted many academics to ignore his claims on grounds that he is acting in bad faith. Harvard Law School professor Charles Freed, for example, told the New York Times that Gay was fending off an extreme right-wing attack on elite institutions. If it came from some other quarter, he said, I might be granting it some credence, referring to the plagiarism accusations. Quote, but not from these people. Similarly, NAACP President Derek Johnson dismissed all criticism of gay as, quote, political theatrics advancing a white supremacist agenda. This attitude, though common, is profoundly mistaken. The charges facing gay are serious, as recent coverage by mainstream outlets like The New York Times and CNN has finally conceded. Neither Rufo's alleged political agenda nor the timing of these revelations should matter if they are in fact true. There's nothing inherently racist or white supremacist about applying Harvard's own standards for students and faculty to the president of the institution. On the contrary, excusing plagiarism at the most elite levels of academia merely because the people calling it out are on the wrong team, that would constitute a profound betrayal of the very values the academy supposedly holds dear. Harvard, which has done very little to address the charges, should take note. Now Rufo's initial reporting, co-authored by writer Christopher Brunet, contended that Gay's dissertation reuse sentences from other scholars without adequately rewording them. She cites her sources, but does not thoroughly paraphrase. This is a form of sloppy plagiarism in which credence is given, but sufficient effort is not undertaken to rework the underlying material. People can disagree about how serious the charge is but it does appear to violate Harvard's policies. That's inarguable. Now, the Washington Free Beacon's Erin Sebarium has also contributed to this reporting, finding numerous additional examples of sloppy plagiarism throughout articles published by Gay between 1993 and 2017. Several of the plagiarized scholars, as well as academic experts consulted by Sebarium, agreed that she had committed plagiarism. And it gets worse. Philip Magnus, an economic historian, who has also written for Reason, where I also work, discovered a passage from a 2014 paper in which Gay inadequately paraphrased other scholars' work and also failed to cite them. That's quite a few examples. At some point, lazy plagiarism is still plagiarism, especially when it is accompanied by literal plagiarism. Now, so far, Harvard has stuck by Gay, merely noting that some of the articles would be reworded to satisfy critics. Well, this did not satisfy CNN's M. Steck, who correctly took the school to task for failing to address, quote, her clearest instances of plagiarism. And according to The Times, the university's review of Gay's work was conducted by Harvard Corporation, the university's governing board rather than the office of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, which would normally handle academic malfeasance in this department. People are, of course, free to conclude that gays' transgressions are not quite serious enough to merit termination or some other disciplinary matter. They're also free to point out that such sloppiness is probably rampant in higher education and certainly under-policed. At some point, though, this isn't really an excuse for gay, but rather a broader indictment of the entire project of elite education. It's baffling, though, that anyone would think gay's work is above scrutiny because the people scrutinizing it are, to varying degrees, adversarial. Would this work for any Harvard students credibly accused of plagiarism? Could they go before their review boards and say, well, my professor is a bad faith actor and thus these numerous examples of plagiarism must be ignored? Obviously not. That idea is ludicrous. Well, enter Ben Collins, a senior reporter at NBC News, who covers disinformation and extremism. Collins believes that mainstream outlets, presumably CNN and The Times, have been manipulated into covering the gay plagiarism story by Rufo and company. That declaration there, maybe the problem is you, is fairly telling. Collins evidently thinks mainstream outlets should not report on the president of Harvard's well-documented plagiarism because he loathes the politics of the people who first identified it. Now this is a journalist whose specialty is apparently correcting misinformation. If Rufo or Magnus or Siberium or anyone else had misinformed readers about gays plagiarism, then yes, the media should correct them. But that's not really what's being debated here. Media outlets are being told to ignore true information because the information is inconvenient. One cannot find a stronger cautionary tale than that. Beware the gatekeepers of misinformation who pretend it is somehow in everybody's best interest if accurate information is kept quiet and who disdain other reporters for breaking ranks. So I've been really worked up about this story in recent um, days because, look, you don't have to like the people identifying it. You are, and you could even say it's not a big deal, whatever, but it, like, it is it, worthy of coverage at this point, and I'm glad the New York Times and CNN have looked at it. There, there are now multiple examples of plagiarism, of, of things that violate Harvard's policies and that people could conceivably, and I'm sure have, been disciplined for. So is, is it not a story because the people who first noticed it are conservative? Does that make any sense? Uh,
1: no, I'm not sure if this is just a problem that Harvard has kind of competing policies when it comes to plagiarism is how I'll put it. So Claudine Gay allegedly has misquoted things, has not put proper quotations where necessary, has used duplicative language in her writing in her nineteen ninety-seven dissertation. Now the Harvard policy for misconduct in this case means there would need to be a significant departure from executive accepted practices within the research community. The misdeeds must have been done intentionally, knowingly, or recklessly, and the allegations must be proven by a preponderance of evidence. Now, what's interesting is Harvard Student Handbook seems to delineate a, a stricter definition of what plagiarism is. They said students who, for whatever reason, submit work either not their own or without clear attribution to its sources will be subject to disciplinary action up to and including requirement to withdraw from the college. Students who break these rules will not be permitted to submit course evaluation for the course in which the, the infraction occurred. So they wouldn't be allowed to, to say Robbie that it's the professor's fault because they are terrible. But uh, they, they say directly, you must place quotation marks properly And and work must be cited fully. And so it seems that that's what's going on with with Claudine Gay's uh, dissertation. So perhaps what's necessary is they review the student handbook and, and make it more similar to Harvard's policy.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's fine. Some explanation has to take place. But Harvard has so far just rubber stamped this all. They didn't have an academic department look at it the way they should. And they said that was because, well, Clouding, it's to be, the Clouding gay is the president of the university, so in some way they can't, you know, these lower people would feel pressured maybe to clear her. So that was supposed to be a, so we're gonna have Harvard Corporation look at it. But obviously, Harvard Corporation, the governing body of Harvard, like has every incentive, I guess, to to make the scene. No, this is not this bad. It's all fine. And plagiarism investigations, according to experts, should take a long time. This was rushed. This happened like instantaneously. And look, I know it, it is the case when Brianna uh, and I have argued about this on the show. She has said, um, well, th- this is the timing of this is the interesting thing because she's being called out. Really, conservatives have their have, have, are targeting Claudine Gay because of the answer she gave in that congressional testimony? And look, that that could all be the case. But if the information is accurate, if it's if these are ag- genuine examples of plagiarism, and now we can and we can see them for ourselves, and we can compare the passages to where they appeared, and we can say, yeah, that's not you know some of it is again is sloppy. It's just it should have been. It is. Uh, attributed to other people, but it needed to be paraphrased more aggressively. And then, in at least the one case that Phil Magnus found, um, it was a it was not sufficiently paraphrased, and it clearly comes from another work. And it's not a quote, and it's not given credit to that person. Some of the, uh, the, the people from whom the plagiarism, uh, who who the plagiarism was done to have said, this is clearly plagiarism and it it should have been handled. And if students submitted this kind of work, you'd, you'd tell them to, you'd at the very least tell them to rewrite it or work on it. Um, look, I'm not saying anything should happen to her without a proper investigation. And maybe this isn't serious enough, but it is a story. It does matter. It is okay to cover it. And I'm so sick of misinformation cop type people like Ben Collins saying, This is, you're being you're being if you if you fall for this story if you take any interest in it at all if you cover it well that's just what right wing people want people want you to do so you shouldn't do that well like is it is it news or not is it is it a journalist's job to like shield people from the truth i don't think that's what like the like the fact checking people should be doing right they should just be telling us if it's true or not if it wasn't true if these aren't examples of plagiarism then they could correct them but they they clearly are they're within the realm of of uh, of, of work that would not be acceptable to um, to professors if you submitted it to them so that's my that's my frustration with the way this this story has gone i think it's it's the she should be held to the same standards as everyone else at harvard
1: i think everyone else at harvard isn't having their 90s dissertation reread but maybe that's the necessary next step maybe we have the woke mob come out and read every dissertation written by a white man who is a professor at the ivy league and we see if they have made the, the same errors or mistakes. I think that would be fair. I do think she is under scrutiny because of her position, which is a part of being in a position of leadership, that your work will be under more scrutiny than others. But I think if if that's what people want moving forward, it's a reasonable way to move forward.
0: I am fine with that. Let's expose the entire academy. I'm sure the work of, the, of, of white males in Harvard, it could be found to be just as sloppy. If that's the case, out they go. It's not about her. It's not about, it's certainly not not about her gender or race it's about um exposing (laughs) really shoddy sloppy work that people are held accountable for and making sure that applies to everyone uh we'll have more rising right after this
1: ufo spotted a ufo hovering over air force one at lax during President Joe Biden's fundraising trip to Los Angeles earlier this week has allegedly been caught on camera. For the Daily Mail, the object was described as a white or silver sphere seen hovering near the president's jet. Hmm.
0: According to the Daily Mail, eyewitnesses spotted an LAPD helicopter circling the, quote, stationary object. Joining us to discuss this exciting development is Harvard's esteemed physicist, Dr. Avi Loeb. Welcome, Dr. Loeb, back to the show.
2: Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure.
0: So, what do you think we are seeing there um, on on the camera? Uh, what p- could potentially explain this? And it could it be uh, an unidentified aerial flying object, the way people have expected?
2: Yeah. The fundamental question is whether it's human made or uh, something from outside of this Earth. But uh, I would. Uh, uh, assume that it must be human-made uh, to start with uh, and then of course we need better data, we need to look at uh, better images uh, and um, not obtain from uh, uh, just people who happen to be at the right place at the right time, but uh, with scientific instruments. So uh, I reserve my judgment, I should say we have uh, about 100,000 objects uh, uh, over the past month that we monitored with the uh, Galileo Project Observatory, Uh, at Harvard University, and we are applying uh, very uh, careful analysis using uh, machine learning uh, to figure out whether we are looking at natural objects like birds, or uh, human-made objects like drones, balloons, uh, airplanes, and you would expect those human-made objects to be around the president's uh, airplane. The question is whether we recognize it, I mean, our people know what it is, Uh, And if not, whether it's some adversarial country. I mean, we know about the Chinese uh, spy balloon that was shut down uh, uh, almost a year ago.
1: Now, the object's been likened to Reaper drones used in the Middle East. I can imagine a world where the military is monitoring the skies around the president's Air Force One jet. But I can also imagine a world where extraterrestrial life is interested in figures like the president of the United States. There have been increased... UFO sightings around nuclear facilities. So I don't know. I'm kind of on the fence as to, to which side I fall on. I haven't seen Reaper drones in use in person. But uh, which way do you, do you fall when you think about something like this? We we assume that it is is human man-made. But what do you make of the UFOs being sighted more around nuclear facilities and now potentially the president's Air Force One jet?
2: Well, I'm just like you. I'm uh, not decided yet because uh, obviously there are people within uh, the military and the intelligence agencies that are talking about objects they cannot identify. And I was uh, at the Washington uh, National Cathedral with uh, Avril Haines, the director of national intelligence, and I asked her, you know, I I said, you submitted reports to Congress about these uh, unidentified anomalous phenomena. Uh, And you have a bachelor's degree in physics from the University of Chicago. What do you make of these objects? What's your gut feeling? And she said, I don't know. Now, one thing is clear, there there are lots of objects in the sky and most of them are likely to be balloons, uh, drones, airplanes. So we really need to do a very thorough job to exclude the majority of the objects that have simple explanations. And that's what AERO, the old Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, is attempting to do about past reports, uh, hundreds of them. And I visited them a couple of weeks ago in Washington, DC. Uh, they are still of the opinion that only a few percent of the objects that they looked into um, as a result of reports from military or intelligence agencies, uh, only a few percent are unidentified. The rest they can figure out. But uh, you know it's not so much about the rest. Uh, even if one in a thousand is of extraterrestrial origin that would have a huge impact on humanity.
0: When we last checked in with you, Dr. Loeb, I believe you were at sea um, in your project to investigate um, debris from objects that may have crashed in the ocean that you think could possibly show uh, an an extraterrestrial origin or an off-world origin. Uh, Could you give us an update on how that project is going?
2: Right, so um, We went back in June for uh, two weeks uh, in search of materials from the first recognized interstellar meteor, an object the size of a watermelon that collided with earth and the fireball that it created as a result of its friction on air was spotted by uh, US government satellites. And uh, uh, we knew the location. We went there with a ship and uh, scooped the ocean floor for any magnetic particles that may have been melted off the surface of this object. And amazingly, we found that 750 such uh, droplets uh, that uh, some of them are background, some came from other meteors, but we found a unique type of uh, spherules. these droplets, that was never seen before in terms of its material composition. And I'm talking about 60 elements from the periodic table. We are now in the process of summarizing all the results Initially, a few months ago, we released uh, some preliminary results from uh, studying just a tenth of all the spheros that we found, but not, by now we went through all of them. And uh, we are now working on the paper that will include all the data. It was a lot of work, six-month work worth of uh, analysis uh, at the laboratory of my colleague at Harvard, Stein Jacobson. Uh, he's a geochemist, has uh, uh, some of the best... Uh, instruments in the world mass spectrometers and uh, uh, imagers and so forth and we also benefited from the x-ray uh, fluorescence analyzer in the laboratory of uh, royal tagel uh, at the Bruker corporation in berlin uh, so we will summarize all these results but the bottom line is we found uh, near the meteor path uh, a type of molten droplets that was never seen before and that's probably of extrasolar origin because it doesn't match the composition of rocks on Earth, Mars, the Moon, asteroids, anything within the solar system. And the next expedition that we are starting to plan right now would be to find bigger pieces. Now we know where to go. And uh, of course, if you find a bigger piece, you can tell the difference between a rock and a technological gadget, because a gadget may have buttons on it. And if we do find something like that, the question uh, will be whether to press a button. (laughs)
1: Are there any other ways you can determine whether something was created by intelligent life or is a material naturally occurring in another solar system?
2: Yeah, I mean, um, the best way to tell that is uh, from a big piece of the object or coming close to an object that is still functional, like an unidentified anomalous uh, phenomenon. Um, So obviously, if you see an object maneuvering in ways that cannot be reproduced by... Our technological products, and you can tell that it's technological because it has screws and maybe even a label made on some exoplanet, it would be clear beyond any reasonable doubt that we're dealing with a piece of technology from another place uh, outside the solar system. And uh, then the question would be, uh, what information is it seeking? Uh, what is its goal? And Uh, It may be purely technological with artificial intelligence, so we might use our own uh, AI systems to figure out extraterrestrial AI systems. Um, Another possibility is that we find uh, space trash, an object that is not functional anymore. For example, this meteor that, you know, if we find uh, a piece of it uh, at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, um, it will obviously not be functional. Uh, because it, it exploded in the atmosphere, but you can still learn a lot uh, about the the object itself. And th- you know, the fundamental question is whether the government uh, has already such information. Because uh, the government monitors the sky all the time. Astronomers look at s- small regions of the sky and focus on very distant sources of light. And if something flies overhead, uh, astronomers disregard it. So it's really the Galileo Project, the first time that there is a scientific uh, study of the full sky at all times. But it's possible the government has its day job uh, for national security purposes to do exactly that. So it's quite possible the government has some information. And we heard from David Grush when he testified in front of, of the House of Representatives that he believes there are programs for retrieval and reverse engineering. Of alien uh, spacecraft and i actually had a conversation with him uh, a couple of weeks ago for more than an hour and i tried to get a better sense of what he knows about uh, the 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 government programs but he says that he cannot really talk about it uh for legal reasons so uh, unfortunately based on the publicly available information i'm with you i'm i'm split i'm not clear yet I mean, it's really all about the evidence, uh, yes. and I haven't seen it yet.
0: Yeah, I, I so agree, and, and I, I wonder if you feel this way, uh, and we'll, we'll let you go in a second, but j- just quickly, um, it, it can be frustrating. I mean, it's so interesting to hear people come forward and testify that they— they have sometimes direct knowledge or sometimes slightly indirect knowledge that they've talked to someone who has seen uh, either evidence of, of, of remains of extraterrestrial life and that the government has that and it, it's like being hidden somewhere. And I, then my next question is, okay, where's that facility? Well, let's let's go there and we never get the actual yes, it's here. Or or then or they'll say I'm being you know told I can't talk about this and I want to okay, well who's telling you that? Let's haul that person before Congress. It starts to become very. Um, very, very frustrating from a from a genuine interest right. and a, and a uh, perspective that this could very much be real, and I would totally believe that the government could have this information and try to cover it up. But at some point, someone needs to come forward with some actual
2: verifiable
0: facts about
2: it. it, it what, what's your sense of that? Exactly, exactly. And also, it should get to the attention of scientists like myself because my day job is to figure out what's outside the solar system. The government's day job is to figure out what's uh, produced by adversarial countries you know it's a very different job and if they have information about my day job uh, I would like to know it and help them figure it out Uh, and it's really the job of science because anything about the universe should be shared by all humans all the the information we know about the Big Bang the expansion of the universe was never classified and this is of the same category we just need to figure out whether we have a neighbor uh, and uh, I should say that um, uh, I'm uh, when I lean in the direction of uh, skepticism, you know, I suddenly have an event like the one happened a few days ago when I had a group of people uh, from Washington, D.C. Uh, in my home uh, for a visit to discuss some other physics project. And one of them uh, was a high-level official, uh, uh, former official in Lockheed Martin. And... I, I just wanted to clear uh, my uh, understanding, and I asked him, uh, well, there is this testimony about potentially corporations or um, you know, uh, outside entities that are outside government that have possession of uh, materials of interest uh, in terms of uh, extraterrestrial uh, you know, uh, spacecraft, and I expected him to say, no, that's complete nonsense, uh, let's move on to another topic. But instead, he said, you know, it may not be wrong. <laughs> and so, you know, I hear both views. People tell me that they have heard, that they know that something is going on, but they don't show the evidence. And at the same time, you know, uh, when, uh, when uh, I try to get um, more information about what's known, I, I, I never get very far. And so out of frustration, you know, as a scientist, I, I realize the sky is not classified, the oceans are not classified, and so I'm trying to figure out the answer myself. But it would save me decades of my time. You know, <laughs> life is short. I would like to know if the government has it already because then I, I, I'll be glad to help them figure it out and mm. I will not have to waste decades of my time trying <laughs> sure. to do it uh, if they already
0: have it. Dr. Avilob, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Giuliani filed for bankruptcy yesterday, days after a jury ordered him to pay $148 million to two former Georgia election workers whom Giuliani accused of committing fraud in 2020 per The Hill. Giuliani's filings list between $1 million and $10 million in assets and between $100 million and $500 million in liabilities.
1: Here's Giuliani yesterday speaking out after the filing.
2: Uh, I said I've got to protect myself and I've got to in essence protect other people you know normal creditors uh who have normal amounts uh that are owed because they'd all be wiped out uh and they'd be wiped out before we even got to an appeal uh i how do, you, I how do they go, even get how to how i mean have to go into bankruptcy if you take if you take away that um if you take away that judgment uh i'm actually a pretty fortunate guy i've got a yeah. decent amount of money i'm not bankrupt But with 148 million, I'm destroyed.
0: Joining us now to weigh in is Hill White House columnist Niall Stanage. Thank you so much for joining us to be with you, Robin. So tell us about this move. Um, is This is Giuliani. Um, this makes tactical sense for him to not have to uh, actually pay this extreme amount of money that he owes to the Georgia election clerks?
3: I suppose it does. I mean, it's the only way out for him, given that he doesn't have 148 million bucks lying around. But you know, obviously other people would say, well, he should have thought about that before he defamed these two women in pretty egregious terms. Two women who were, you know, otherwise uh, anonymous citizens who were doing their duty as election
0: workers. And correct me if I'm wrong, but he's gone back and forth on this because initially he said, well, he said what he said about them was true. Mm. Then he said, um, well, it wasn't true, but it was just free speech. It wasn't defamatory. Then, Mm. Then his attorneys, I think, conceded, well, it was defamatory, but the 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 amount of money they're requesting is outrageous then he more recently went back and again said no it is all true and I I shouldn't face this persecution
3: right and just to complete the circle there those comments that he made what he did suggest these claims were true have themselves elicited the suggestion that the two women involved are going to turn around and sue him again for defamation because he repeated the false claims. And this was Trump's attorney. I know, it's not a great (laughs) sign. This is Four Seasons landscaping all over again, except in defamation terms.
0: Uh, What do you make of this, Jessica?
1: I find it fascinating that Giuliani has said he wants to protect the good creditors where there's a reasonable amount of money owed. Filing for a bankruptcy would put an automatic stay on any debts owed. I'm not sure what creditors he's protecting by filing for bankruptcy? Is he talking about, you know, the $1 million owed in back taxes to the IRS? Does he identify the IRS as a good creditor? I don't know what to make of that. Uh, if, if he was really worried about those creditors so much, he could pay off those debts before filing for bankruptcy. But anyway, I, I think it's fascinating because you have the election worker's lawyer saying that the maneuver's unsurprising and it will not succeed in discharging Mr. Giuliani's debt to Ruby Friedman and Shay Moss. Do you see a, a judge uh, assigning some sort of appeal where they try and garner Giuliani's assets? What do you see moving forward for that attorney there, if anything, Niall?
3: I think in general terms, Jessica, it is not something that the courts look kindly upon where someone uh, receives an adverse ruling or a demand for uh, costs or damages and then instantly turns around and suggests that they're bankrupt as a way to avoid paying those costs. Not to compare Rudy Giuliani with Alex Jones at least too closely, but, I mean, Alex Jones, as I understand it, is now negotiating with the Sandy Hook families as to exactly how he may begin making some dent in the amount of money that he was ordered to pay them. So it's obviously a complicated legal process, but as a general matter, you can't just receive an adverse ruling and then say, well, I'm bankrupt. So that's just tough.
0: Wasn't Giuliani formally upset at um, uh, uh, Trump for not paying him on time, paying his legal fees? He
3: was. And there was also some suggestion, Robbie, that Trump could somehow come to his aid in, in fundraising terms. Perhaps not such a surprise. Trump uh, doesn't
0: even come to the aid in fundraising terms of, of the candidates, right? No, I mean, he didn't help out the uh, uh, Blake Masters and right. and Georgia and Nevada, et cetera. There were a lot of complaints about that.
3: Exactly. I mean, loyalty tends to be a one-way street with the former president. That's one of the few things that seems to be a, a bipartisan consensus around him, that he expects loyalty toward him, which Rudy Giuliani showed in a way that I think incinerated Giuliani's own credibility. But when the bill came due for Rudy, the former president, wasn't uh, very uh, obvious. Hmm.
1: Do
0: you think Giuliani... So it like the- oh, go ahead, Jessica.
1: It sounds like the judge is a little bit suspicious of, of this maneuver from Giuliani as well, preemptively you know, talking about his failure to satisfy more modest monetary awards entered earlier in this case provides good cause to believe that he's going to seek to dissipate or conceal his assets within a 30-day period. Could we see Giuliani doing this? I guess that's what you alluded to with Alex Jones a bit. But could we see him facing financial crime charges as well?
3: Uh, I am not, frankly, sure of the answer to that. I don't think that uh, those sort of uh, avoidances constitute a criminal uh, tax or financial offence. But certainly it's not something that the court is uh, likely to look kindly upon if they believe that you're simply trying to wriggle out of these things. You alluded a moment or two ago, Jessica, to the issue of uh, how Giuliani had sort of claimed uh, that he's really trying to protect the good creditors. The, excuses like that seem uh, just so implausible.
0: It is a mm. massive amount of money, $146 million, mm. um, right, as he explained in that clip. He has he has money, but you know no one has 146. Know, a couple people do, but sure. most most people, even well off people, don't have 148 million mm. lying around. Um, you know the, the way damages get in, assigned in these cases is very interesting. Obviously, look, I, I agree that what you know what he said about the election workers was false and was damaging to them, and they faced a lot of death threats, and they had to move. Um, Still, I'm still, that's a that's a very it's a very high figure for for bad speech that had you know bad consequences for them. Not making light of that, still, it's a lot of money.
3: Oh, it level. is a huge amount of money. And I mean, how do you define what exactly it's worth? You know, it's at 146 right. million, 120 million, 80 million. All those sums of money are uh, larger than uh, you or I will I think ever have the capacity to pay. But the intention clearly was to apply punitive damages. What the precise figure for punitive is is obviously open to debate. But as I understand Giuliani's claims about his own finances, if say 20 million had been the the sum, he still couldn't pay it as I understand it.
0: Mm. What do you think about that number, Jessica?
1: It's a huge number. I think about these two election workers being in the media so much. Rudy Giuliani is a huge public figure. Right. So it's not a typical defamation case. If you were not a public figure and you said something about these two election workers, the damages probably wouldn't be so steep. But when you have the media circus that occurred around the 2020 election, all of the statements made about the election not being legitimate, those statements repeated on mainstream media, I just wonder if if some of this verdict uh, this ultimate one hundred forty six million dollars figure, initially one hundred and forty eight, they kindly reduced it by two million for Giuliani, not making it more affordable for him. But I, I really think it's because this is a, a, a case with so much weight, because things played out in the media in a major way. These two election workers' lives, I'm sure, will never be the same. So it's not really a a typical defamation case in that way. What do you think, Niall?
3: No, that's true. It's certainly atypical in a number of ways. And I think probably the disparity in power and influence of the two sides essentially plays a part in this amount of money. I mean, you have two women who, as I say, were otherwise unknown before all this kicked off. You have the former mayor of New York City turned lawyer for the then president of the United States, defaming them and really causing, as Robbie said, massive disruption to their lives. That obviously is going to uh, elicit a big bill at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, he, he definitely um, defamed them. He should pay them something. Um, hundred More than, north of $100 million is a lot of money, but, you know, I was not uh, judge during the case. Uh, Niall, thank you so much for joining yeah. us. More Rising right after this.
1: Another government sex tape? It seems like sex at the Capitol may be more common than we previously thought. Semaphore has reportedly obtained footage of a man masturbating in what appears to be the U.S. Capitol. Semaphore reported this week that the clip circulated on Snapchat last year. Another Snapchat clip, a screenshot of which Semaphore reportedly reviewed, allegedly shows two men having sex.
0: According to Semaphore, Representative Dan Newhouse was told soon after the videos were posted on Snapchat that one of the participants was alleged to be a member of his staff. A spokesperson for the congressman confirmed to the outlet that reports of, quote, purported unbecoming behavior by a senior staffer had prompted an investigation last year but that no conclusive evidence had been found. The unnamed staffer denied to Semaphore that he participated in those videos and uh, says, according to Semaphore, that he did leave that—he left that congressman staff for unrelated reasons on good terms. So uh, the specifics of this one, as best I can tell, it's not uh, perhaps as clear who the participant or participants are, as opposed to the, <laughs> the sex tape in the, uh, the Senate meeting room that uh, we discussed earlier this week on the show and was really— um, a topic of considerable conversation on social media last weekend. But in any case um, and and the you know the salaciousness of it and the, the because these were gay hookups, my point of view is just like, why, don't do this at your, at your office, don't do this at work, don't do, like, you can't, it's not that it's the, sac- uh, the sacred nature of a government building, you just, like, in any, in any business, any place where people work, like, it's an HR violation <laughs> to do this kind of thing, and it's kind of crazy that people keep doing it, just, like, not at work, please, is that a reasonable position to take?
1: I think it's reasonable. I don't think it's reasonable that nobody was believing Madison Cawthorn. Obviously, the kid wasn't lying about what he told us about. Um, Anyway, I think the the thing that was reported widely, that it appears to be at the U.S. Capitol. I don't know what's worse, if it was actually at the U.S. Capitol and this was someone doing this while they were working, combining their, their side job with their day job or what have you. I think it would be worse if this was a room made to look like the U.S. Capitol (laughs) and it was a replica in someone's house. I think that that is worse.
0: Um, It's like a porn studio setup that was like the storyline was congressman's aide. Yeah, okay, well, that would not be an HR violation, but I I take your point.
1: Yeah, it it would be much weirder, though. Um, I think also their, their face was not in this most recent video, which is why, you know, they weren't identified and they ended up, you know, leaving their position later on for other reasons. This is obviously coming out now because of the other sex tape that we know about, but it's weird to say, well, it kind of looks like you. It's like, you know what I look like without clothes on from behind boss. Like that's an HR nightmare as well, trying to prove (laughs) that it looks like them. So what a terrible situation to be in. I, I just think it's unsanitary. Like, just don't do that in a room where people are working and sitting, and they spend many long hours in the room, and I'm sure people do eat snacks in the room, and that, that is horrifying, Robbie.
0: Yeah, It's, yes, it's very unsanitary. I mean, both both situations are unsanitary, don't have sex on people's desks, again places they work. Um, Frankly, if I'm getting the details right, this one sounds honestly even more unsanitary, Um, although it's all it's all bad. Don't do this at work people like very easy. There's (laughs) you have a home, you have whatever your house, your apartment. Um, It's not it's 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 not good. is there, do you think, Jessica, there's just too much, this is why I'm not getting any legislating, why this country has so many problems. Um, the people who are supposed to be helping our legislators come up with good policy are too busy um, <laughs> having sex in the, in the closets, in the meeting rooms of the U.S. Capitol.
1: And filming it, Robbie. I I'm think the tragedy it. here is congressional salaries are incredibly low. It takes a lot of expertise to be able to be someone Who can write good policy? Who can write good legislation? And the salary is extremely low. It seems like they were supplementing their income with this in some way. I I know that people record themselves having sex for fun. That would be good if it was that. But I think congressional staffers in this day and age are not recording themselves having sex for no money at all. That's just my hunch. And so I believe this was them supplementing their income if they had perhaps a more fair wage wage. They no. would be more focused while they were at work, Rob. No,
0: no, 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 no. I, am not gonna. Um, I, I see where you're, where you're going with this. Um, they, uh, but that, that does raise the point, like, okay, because it's not just these people having sex in the workplace, which is the U.S. Capitol. They are also filming it. They're like filming themselves, um, again, doing a very obvious HR. Violation, a, a something you would be terminated from if caught doing in like most workplaces in America, and you decide to film it seems like incredibly risky behavior. Um, that something like this is exactly what's going to get out, but um, you know, not again. This is not this is not judgment. Everybody's free to do whatever they want, but not at the workplace. Um, that is. Right like an ironclad um rule. Um do, do you think so you're talking about the the filming quality? Do you think the you know the lighting, the videographer skills are um are something you know to be to be appreciated the from an artistic standpoint?
1: I haven't seen the video, Robbie, so I, I haven't can't either. speak to that. Yeah. Um I can't speak to that. I can't speak to them doing a, a good job. Um, it would be would it be redeeming? I don't know if it would be better or worse. I want to know how they got away with it. How did they know this room was open? Why was no one there? I've been in the Capitol before. It is weirdly ghostly in the halls. There's not a lot of action. Granted, I've only been there early in the morning, but actually, I I can see a room being in, abandoned and there being an opportunity for this. Security should be a little bit tighter at the Capitol for someone to get away from sneaking off into a room and, and not being seen for so long that they're able Seven. to film themselves having sex. Like yeah. what's I think Capitol security has been flagged as a major concern.
0: Yeah, I don't know what yeah. your uh, experience has been there. But when, yeah, when I'm there, I, just, I open doors. And I'm like, oops, there's people having sex here. The next room, oops, people having sex here. I, I guess that's just, yeah. you know, how it goes. U.S. Capitol. Um, right. You
1: but- politely close them and you say, just don't film it. Just yeah,
0: the, fun, uh, the, the January Sixers should have said they were just there for hookups and then they would have been like, oh, come right in. It's not a problem. And it would, would have ended this whole prosecution, I think.
1: They would have gotten themselves a job, Robbie.
0: Yeah, that's how yeah. you get
1: a job on, at the Capitol.
0: <laughs> All right. We have made fun of this ridiculous story for as much as we possibly can. I hope there are no more of these to come. Um, people Tummy just down. oh god I can't believe I just said that all right we're ending this more rising after this go away <laughs> Bye. a new clip showing a University of Minnesota College of Liberal Arts professor saying that the U.S. is an occupier and needs to be decolonized during a pro-Palestinian teach-in is making the rounds on conservative Twitter conservatives alleged that the clip reveals what leftists really mean when they push for decolonization and land acknowledgement efforts. Let's watch.
4: Hearing people on social media saying like, oh, land back, like genocide, does this mean genocide? No, but land back is, is going to happen. That's going to happen, the indigenous perspective in Turtle Island and how we understand what is also happening in Palestine. And what we really want you to take away tonight is, as Anthony said, we're in the belly of the beast, right? We're all indigenous people who come from nations that are under occupation by the United States government. And of course the US bankrolls on the Israeli occupation of Palestinian land. They're one in the same, really. And so it's our responsibility as people who are within the United States to go as hard as possible to decolonize this place because that will reverberate all across the world because the US is the greatest predator empire that has ever existed, right? And so we want US out of everywhere we want U.S. out of Palestine, we want U.S. out of Turtle Island, right? And that the goal is to dismantle the, the settler project that is the United States um, for the freedom and the, the future of all life on this planet. Um, it very much depends upon that.
0: Another panelist expressed how the terrorist attacks on October 7th made him feel uplifted, but he was shocked how his friends and family denounced the violence. And I didn't understand, especially people that I thought were, that I had like a political understanding of like, I don't know, like
3: decolonization or like what's happening in Palestine. Like I thought like this would be like an uplifting moment. It's like, wow, like this is actual, Justine said this, like Palestine is doing like a land back. Like they're, they're actually doing like what we think that we want to do, but we haven't gotten there yet. But Palestine is just doing it right now. And for, uh, for me, that was just like, that was beautiful to see. That's like, wow, like, wow, I want to be that qu- resistance to be so strong. I want our fire as people to be so strong
0: that we just take back what is ours. So when I talk about, when I accuse some on the left, leftist activists of endorsing the violence that took place on October 7th, this is exactly the kind of thing um, that I'm referring to, and I guess in answer to that individual's question of why more people weren't celebrating, um, it's because it's disgusting to celebrate the murder and kidnapping of innocent civilian people, and also, even if you think somehow that that is justified, the immediate result has been 10 20,000 Palestinian casualties at, in in terms of Israel's response to wipe out Hamas. So, it seems a very— To my my mind, even if—I don't think it's justified, but even if it's it's justified, it's a very bad strategy. Um, Maybe you speak woke better than I do, but I I think that Turtle Island is— the activists who referred to Turtle Island, means um, North America. So if the U.S. is is colonizing North America and is going to get out of North— does that mean we all have to leave or everyone who is not—who doesn't have indigenous— Ancestry, obviously it's it's mixed. Some people have slightly indigenous ancestry. What percentage indigenous do you have to be to not be evicted by these activist people?
1: I think uh, what they mean when they say decolonized, they absolutely mean land back, land that is sovereign. There were people living here before settlers came from Europe. That's something that's you know frequently denied that this was land that was free for the taking simply because there was not a Western state established. Um, so, yeah, of course, there should be sovereign land for indigenous people to live on, to go back to. And the comparison to what's happening in Israel-Palestine, I think, is so jarring for people because a, a lot of people don't recognize that in their day-to-day life, that they're living on land where there were people living on before the United States was established. This wasn't just a barren landscape for you to build a country on. There were many different nations on the land where the united states is and that's hard for people to take in it's also hard i think for israel to grapple with the fact that they very much did the same thing in 1948 when they decided to push palestinian people out of the land that they have lived on for many many years and establish an ethno state the ethno state of israel and they're still pushing people out of their land today this is an ongoing project and so when we talk about colonization We talk about quite literally through violence, taking land that people call their homes. If someone came to our houses uh, in the United States today in like a white suburban neighborhood and they decided to take it and say that it was theirs now. And when we said, hey, like, no, this is my home. This is where I live. This is my land. You can't take it. They say that's ridiculous. You guys are savages. The way you live is despicable. Uh, It's uncivilized and we're going to live here. And unless you will live the same way we live, you have to leave. That's reality for indigenous peoples in the United States. And so when I hear their complaints and when I hear them being inspired by Palestinians resistance, it makes sense when you know a life of violence, when your livelihood and your home and your ancestors have been taken by settler violence, I can understand them seeing what's happening in Palestine and, and feeling similar about it.
0: I mean, I can understand objecting to um, dis- the deliberate displacing of people while it's happening. I certainly object to it. I don't want to take, I don't want to violate people's property at all. Its property should be sacrosanct. Um, I think there's a difference between that and pointing out that there is no way to, like, remedy injustices committed 100 100- people years hundreds of years ago, which go back and forth like whose land was it initially? As you note, there were there absolutely were native tons of Native Americans living in North America, warring with each other. Like whose land is whose is not something I mean, we're supposed to give uh, Texas and New Mexico and Arizona back to the state of Mexico. Like, how far does it go back? It just starts to become ridiculous. Eventually, uh, especially in a, when the populations then intermixed or died off, um, like, we have to live in reality. And we should not mistreat people or we should not continue to violate people's rights or take their stuff. But we also can't, like, make up for—, for Like, all of human history is these kinds of conflicts, like— you know, re- conflicts between neighbors and neighboring states and neighboring peoples, and like, I mean, we would we would all have to return to Africa in some in some like to go back far enough. I don't understand. Like, it gets cut off. Well, the, the, the U.S. we act like the U.S. was the first um, uh, nation or nation. Or I guess the British coming to America was like the first example of conflict between two groups of people. No, it goes back further than that, and we we can't we can't fix those things. It just—it it seems ridiculous. And I think activist people who talk about that like we're going to get—like we're going to give North America back to, to the, the, the tribes who existed in North America in, in, uh, in the 1500s is not—strikes people as ridiculous. In a way that—yes, in, in a way that treating Palestinians better and not further encroaching on their lands, for instance, in the West Bank, I don't think that sounds ridiculous. I'm, I'm with you on that.
1: Like in the same way that we have, you know, states established in the United States, there can be land given that's designated as sovereign land to be governed, not by people uh, who have written a constitution who are mostly white, mostly European with an entirely different culture uh, than the natives who are living in the United States. There are many people who are indigenous who want to go back to that. They want to have their own government. They want to have their own way of life and their own culture, be the dominant culture in the place that they live. And they don't have a place to do that right now. And so I think it's completely reasonable and entirely doable to say, okay, we have all of this federal land. How about instead of granting more drilling permits, we instead give this land back to the native people who were living on it before. It's a very attainable policy solution. We have drilling permits and and swaths of federal land that is entirely unused. It's not owned by anyone. People aren't living on it. It's land that can be given back. It's actually not difficult to do. And when they talk about colonization, they really talk about controlling other people. So the United States has done this all over the world. They're talking about U.S. imperialism. The U.S. Is, is doing this through proxy with Israel. There's a ton of land and natural gas. They have plans drawn up by the Department of Energy, where they would like to establish a canal through the, the desert, the Negev Desert, that passes directly through Gaza. Uh, as an alternative to the Suez Canal. This is plans that they drew up after uh, the war over the Suez Canal when we had mostly French and British stakeholders controlling the canal and Egypt decided, you know what, this land was actually Egypt's and this canal was dredged by Egyptian labor. This is actually ours. There's no reason uh, Britain and France should own this. And so they decided to take it back. That was an effort of decolonization. The French and the British no reason to control that canal. And the U.S. has said, "Okay, well, if you want to take it back, we're going to take this other land and displace these other people because that's a little bit more financially and militarily feasible. And the United States supporting Israel, I would not be surprised, is a part of a larger effort to establish a canal there. That's why they have established secret military bases there that we now know about through Department of Defense documents that would have gone unrecognized if it weren't for The Intercept reading them. Uh, there's so much there, so many practices that are not at all different from the colonization of the early United States that are happening today, happening right now, and have been happening for the last half of a century on a regular basis.
0: Well, you tell us, viewers, what do you think about decolonization, realistic or not? We'll have more rising right after this. Another day and another Biden gaffe. The United States president appeared confused when questioned about a hostage deal in the Israel-Hamas war yesterday. Let's watch.
2: You're, are we expecting a hostage deal anytime soon? Yes. Oh really?
0: Okay.
3: Well, well wait, Where? Over uh, Oh no, i was i was talking about. You're talking country. about us? We're pushing it. We. I. I don't. There's no expectation at this point. <laughs> but we are pushing. It.
0: Meanwhile, the New York Times just came out with an investigation. During the first six weeks of the war in Gaza, Israel routinely used one of its biggest and most destructive bombs in areas that it designated safe for civilians, according to an analysis of visual evidence by The New York Times. Now the video investigation focuses on the use of 2,000-pound bombs in an area of southern Gaza where Israel had ordered civilians to move for safety. Now while bombs of that size are used by several Western militaries, munitions experts say they're almost never dropped by U.S. forces in densely populated areas anymore. So let's start with Biden, and then we'll come back to this. I think the reporter was a little taken aback. He was like, oh, so there is a hostage deal? That's great news. What are the details? And then Biden was forced to concede that there is no such hostage deal. Maybe he's pushing for one. Maybe he would like you know, a a pause of some kind of temporary ceasefire to resume so that that can take place. But he seemed uh, confused. I mean, we got to be fair to him. Maybe he misheard the question. Maybe um, he was thinking about, um, uh, I don't know, the the Venezuela situation that I think we're going to discuss later. Um, Or maybe he's just, you know, not—it takes a couple extra seconds to calculate what's being discussed.
1: Yeah, it was loud out there. He had a hard time hearing. He's old. It could be a number of things. But Biden commonly is spewing false information to the press. And I think he knows it while he's doing it. When he was asked about the Al-Shifa Hospital, he said, you know, yes, there is a command center there. Absolutely. He was sure of it. And then when asked what proof he had that the Al-Shifa Hospital, Gaza's most important hospital. It was its busiest hospital. It had the best medical technology. Um, They said it was a Hamas command center. The Israeli defense forces released footage of the supposed tunnels underneath the command center. And when Biden was directly asked, what evidence do you have that this is a command center used by Hamas? He said, "Uh, I, I won't tell you. And that's ridiculous. Of course, there was no evidence. If he had evidence and was sure it was a command center, he would say something to the effect of, you know, I can't disclose the evidence that we have, but we are positive it's a command center. Also, if the US had intelligence that one of their allies was absolutely positive that there was a command center for a terrorist group under a hospital, There's no chance that that intelligence would be unreliable. So it seems that Biden is spewing whatever he thinks is most useful for the administration's position at the time he's asked the question. So it could be the case in this particular scenario that he was confusing Venezuela with Israel-Palestine, and that's why he followed up with, wait, where? But it could also be the case that he's just giving the answer that's most convenient at the time. Later, of course, now we know that there's been an investigation by The Washington Post and that they didn't find that the al-Shifa hospital was a command center used by Hamas. It doesn't matter. The White House, in you know coordination with Israel, is allowed to say what they need to say. And by the time we find that it's false, the media has moved on. And I think Biden keeps getting away with it. He's going to keep doing it.
0: Yes, uh, it does seem that reporting on on the hospital, um, calling it a command center for Hamas was an exaggeration um, as far as we can tell now. Um, that was uh, that was an overreach by uh, by Israeli intelligence claims or U.S. intelligence claims. If uh, I, I don't know that U.S. intelligence did make that claim, but we certainly didn't contradict a claim by Israel. And now, as this investigation by the Washington Post has pretty persuasively shown, was definitely not being used as a command center. I mean, the, the, they did the tunnels are there, and it's possible that there was a, um, a Hamas military presence there, and they, they were used. But the idea that this was um, you know, a central hub of activity for Hamas, which justified Israel going in you know, making the hospital lose its special protected status. You can't, you know, just target hospitals unless um, unless you—unless they are being used for some military purpose, and that would—then they would lose their protection. Um, that and again, it does seem like—I I think you're right that it, it was a profound exaggeration and wrong to claim that it was a command center, um, a a, def, a wrong piece of information that Joe Biden very credulously um, embraced and recirculated.
1: Yeah, it was found that the tunnels don't connect to the Al Shifa hospital. So they, they went through the tunnels and they found that they don't connect at all to the Al Shifa hospital, which tells me if you're dropping 2000 ton bombs on residential areas that you've designated as safe areas for Palestinians in Gaza to go. And if you're attacking hospitals where many infants died in the ICU, they removed food, fuel and electricity. This was a hospital civilians relied on to survive, not just people who were suffering injuries from the carpet bombing of Gaza, but people uh, who regularly need medical care, people who have lifelong illnesses, infants that were in the NICU. So you have all these reasons for people to be in the hospital and then for Israel to come in and siege the hospital where some civilians also decided to take shelter because they were absolutely positive, so positive that they had uh, a CGI generation of what the tunnels looked like under the hospital. Turns out the tunnels were not there connecting to the other Hamas tunnels. Uh, They showed a video of an elevator shaft when reporters were allowed into the Al Shifa hospital. So they continued on with this lie, why? Because they wanted to attack a hospital, because they didn't want Palestinians to survive after they bombed residential neighborhoods. Why are they bombing the areas that they're designating as safe spaces? Because they don't want Palestinian civilians to survive. It's very clear in their actions and their words. They said that there are no innocents in Gaza. This is what they genuinely believe in the United States. Needs to absolutely stop supporting Israel, which very clearly has one intent, and it is to kill as many Palestinians as possible.
0: Yeah, I, I abs- I think it's um, a huge blow to the credibility of the IDF that this claim did not turn out to be correct, and they have every right to target genuine, genuine Hamas terrorists, Hamas command centers. Um, they should not just. Um, attack hospitals for the fun or the sport of it is cruel and insane. And if they want um, international support for what they're doing, they need uh, they need to be far more discerning and uh, not put us in the position um, that they that they put Biden in or Bi- Biden just embracing whatever they say. This is what you need to be skeptical of government sources. It's it's right to be skeptical of government intelligence. I think it's you know right to be. Somewhat skeptical, all oh, you have to see what everybody's saying about the issue and try to make an independent conclusion based on the evidence available. And based on the evidence we, we now have, um, yeah, it's, it, it was not that was not accurate information, and that is a major blow to the credibility, I think, of some of this operation. That does it for us for today. Jessica and I will be back with you next week at some point, and more rising at a later date.